0: So, bringing you the latest news—that's what you come here for—is the latest and greatest <laughs> news. After a week, when we post this, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, hey, I've,
1: I've been editing in—I know—like
0: three hours. And and I, for a while there, I was really good about posting the day after when I get everything written up and everything. But then um, last time, I, I just got really busy. So this time, that's not going to happen. We're going to post and get it done Thursday. That'd be awesome. Yeah. 24 hours. 24 hours. 24 hour delay. It's a big commitment. I'm actually taking some time off tomorrow, so it's going to be easy. Uh,
1: So so. back to your, your intro way. So oh Yeah, so
0: Slack. Slack uh, acquires Screen Hero, so.
1: And shall I give a a description, Uh, just a complete ad lib description of uh, what what, uh, Screen Hero is all about? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, take two. Okay. So, um, so we've used this, we were just talking about that. You, you know, I messed around with it, but I've actually used it in um, kind of an actual pairing scenario. It's been a while, but yeah, even, I think the last time I used it was about a year ago, but I think it was out of beta by then. Um, but even when it was in beta, it was, it's pretty nice. Their, their whole thing is all about, you know, you share one person's screen, but it's like, you have two sets of keyboard and, and mice. Um, and and of course you're, the two people are remote. And you see both people's, you know, mouse pointer on the screen and both people can type. It's it's kind of weird until you get used to it, but it's a really nice way of remote pairing and you know, their goal has always been to have like the lowest latency possible and it's it's pretty damn low. I mean, as long as you have a good uh low latency connection to whoever you're pairing with, it seems to be, you know, really low latency and, and pretty natural. Um uh, it's about as good as it gets for a remote pairing. I mean, maybe something like uh what's the uh like I don't know what just a terminal-based sharing or Tmux or something, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're full graphics and all that, it, it's pretty nice. I think they started charging too when they came out of beta. I haven't used it, I don't think, since then, so I'm not yeah, sure they, what it they costs. Have their, but
0: they had their free version, and they have—I um, think they have an annual subscription service. Which when I, re- when I read about the acquisition, they talked about what happens to the people who bought. So basically, if you're paying month to month, um, you'll—the last payment you made is the last payment you'll make. Basically. They're going to stop charging. If you're on an annual, then they'll contact you and they're supposed to get you a refund for whatever's left over. Um, and then they're not doing any new signups, but if you're already have an account, you should be able to still invite people to to, to join or something like that. But either way, they're not taking new signups right now. And first for for screen, screen hero? hero. Yep. Really? <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's what what they're planning on doing is porting everything over into Slack. So Slack will not only do the the messaging and content communication and all that kind of stuff, but it'll also handle the screen sharing as well. That's kind of a bummer.
1: That's like when Salesforce buys one of these companies and then either completely shuts it down. What was the, what was the, in fact, they did it with a screen sharing, like a little conferencing kind of WebEx type of thing. Which one was Mm -hmm. that? I can't remember the name of it, but shut it down. And then they didn't even do anything with it as far. I mean, I haven't seen that functionality reappear anywhere, you know? So that's the worst case scenario. I guess, I guess slightly less bad cases, you know, you have to be a Salesforce customer in order to access it because they, they make it available only to,
0: yeah, only to, well, Salesforce. they're not shutting the service down. You're still able to use it. They're just not taking any new signups. And I think what, and I, I hope that's evident that they're going to actually put this technology into Slack and it'll just be that one app, which I think would be nice. It'd be nice to switch over to that.
1: I mean, if you want it, I guess still, I don't know. It kind of sucks for people who just want Screen Hero, but whatever. At least Slack is a really nice product. It's, I don't I see think it's, Slack as
0: being all that intrusive, though. I mean, it's, it's no. I'm just saying you have to buy. You'll have to buy Slack
1: now. Hmm. So that's kind of a bummer. I mean, if you oh, just wanted, yeah. Now you have to you know buy the whole family of products, basically, if you just want the screen hero thing. But yeah, Slack is Slack is good.
0: Speaking of, um, so they they do team sharing and all that kind of stuff. But I recently ran into, um, a I was. I had a pro- I bought something and I had an issue, so I contacted support. It was kind of late in the evening, and I just did the whole chat for support thing. And um, it was with Belkin, and so I, I know for sure that Belkin uses Salesforce because the URL on the chat when the window was Salesforce Live Agent. So I was yeah. They bought. I guess they bought Live Agent, right? Yeah. So so they're using similar technology. I don't. I don't think Salesforce would ever add any kind of.
1: I don't think video. Live Agent is. I don't think Live Agent is anything like Slack whatsoever.
0: No, I mean, that's more team communication, but Chatter in itself kind of handles that as well. So I, I guess, you know, is there, if Salesforce wanted to continue and grow Chatter and add more to it, would it end up looking something like the Slack screen hero combination? Um, It, it might, I don't know. I mean,
1: if not Slack is, Slack seems newer. They've been around for what, a year, maybe? They seem really new, but maybe that's just when I've discovered them, but. Um, Slack is just so much better done, more more well done than than Chatter is. It's I don't even consider them competitors, even though I guess they got a bar, huh?
0: Yeah, yeah. But again, I haven't seen too much in the way of new or, or exciting things coming for Chatter. Um, I don't even hear any rumors about it. I think it's pretty much it is what it is, and it's not that it's not getting used. There are plenty of, of my customers and everything using it, so it's not. I don't, I don't think it's not
1: getting used, but. So other than people who, you know, nominally use it, do you know companies that, that, you know, the majority of the people are actually, you know, willingly and productively using it to get stuff done, to get work done and collaborate and everything?
0: No, I don't think so. I, I think that it's being used as a way to communicate, a way, a way to kind of mass communicate, kind of overriding some emails. I think people watch the feeds for things that's going on with opportunities and things like that. So I think it's, a it's, more, of, it's a
1: lot of one-way communication. It's a lot of
0: one-way, passive, almost almost like the way I treat Facebook. I just kind of glance at it every so often to see what's going on, but I, n- I never really actively participate in it. You know, and I
1: think that's, I think the re- main reason for that, as far as I can tell, is that this is just that chatter is clunky. It's just not, the interface is not nice. You know, But it is, it,
0: is it chatter in general, or is it these type of applications where we've kind of removed the direct face-to-face interface because a lot of us are now remote and trying to replace it with this digital interface between us? And is that working out? And Maybe in some environments, it's working great and everything, but.
1: I think you're a little biased because you, you work remotely. Most people still don't. So maybe are you saying maybe they don't need it because they're not remote? Most people aren't remote?
0: I, I guess so. I guess if if you're not remote and the person's sitting next to you, why would you perform a chatter communication or try to communicate in that way when you could just, you know, swivel around and talk to the person? That's true. Yeah.
1: Unless you, I don't know, I guess you could force it if you kind of wanted just to leave that permanent record of, of the thought process or whatever happened. I mean, I could
0: see management loving it because they can go in and see what everyone's doing and it's their way of kind of keeping tabs on everything. But I think from a, just a, you know, guy who's getting stuff done, I, I'm not sure it's something that we're asking for. Is it? I'm, I, I don't know. I think like, let's take you and I, for example, we've, we've communicated back and forth on a, on a lot of different issues or just bugs or something that we're trying to get each other's opinion on. And we're not, we have Slack, but we're not, we jumped on it maybe once to test it out, but no, we're actually Skyping and screen sharing, doing all that kind of stuff.
1: Well, that's because what we discovered on Slack that you really need three, at least three participants, or it just doesn't make, a, I don't know. I mean, you could make it work, especially if you really cared about having that a nice permanent record of things. But right. just for person to the, person, the barrier to usage of Skype is lower because I've already got Skype open it's already an app that's running and I use it for, I'm already using it for communicating with lots of different people.
0: Yeah. But, but if maybe, I, you know, maybe that's what screen hero brings to Slack that can kind of put them over the top. Cause maybe, maybe just simply communicating and passing files back and forth isn't, isn't what we need for pure productivity. Maybe it's, it's also being able to get on the phone and just do a quick share.
1: Yeah. could be, I mean, I could definitely see how, you know, uh, and screen heroes a, is, a, isn't
0: if that train of thought, if that logic holds true, then it's, it'd be the same for chatter that, you know, maybe just having a feed of, of information isn't enough. Maybe we need a way to actively participate, you know, person to person, voice to voice, if not video to video. And do you think Salesforce could handle that?
1: Well, They can't even handle, you know, running unit tests in a reasonable amount of time. So. Uh, yeah, no. but that's,
0: I think that's... And and
1: their way of scaling is to not scale. It's to limit so they don't have to scale. So, no, I don't think they could. Not without buying another. If they bought, if they acquired a company or technology, maybe. Yeah, maybe they'll buy Slack. Yeah, except they already have... If they didn't already have a a chat thing, then maybe so. You know, they've got... Because it kind of competes with Chatter and, like you said, um, maybe a live agent to some degree. All the live agents for that
0: client. Yeah, it's more kind of customer... Facing type yeah. stuff. It's not really internal work chat, but anyways, that's the news on, on Slack. See how I tied that in nicely with Salesforce. Put yep. mm, nice. a bow on that, man. It's done. Very nice. Um, Any other exciting news? I, I, I'm going to toss this one out there cause we're not going to really talk about it, but Google glass getting not, it's not really going away, but it's shifting over to the, um, uh, what's his name? The nest founder, Tony, Tony Fidel. Okay. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're ending their Explorer program is what they're doing and, and they're shifting ownership of it over to him.
1: <laughs> That's uh, how you claim victory. Yeah, exactly.
0: But it was, it was a TechCrunch article and I thought it, I thought it was interesting just, just from the pure fact of when it comes to wearables and, and that, that huge experiment and whether or not it was going to work, or whether it's not the type of reaction that we had, because our last topic, we talked about creepy and glass was right up there at the very top of the creepy scale. Because it wasn't just you; it wasn't about your information. It was it, it was something that impacted other people's information, other people's privacy. Um, so I I think it's interesting that it's kind of being shuffled over. I don't know if that means it has much of a future.
1: Yeah, I don't know either. I just never got into glass. I mean, it's kind of cool, but it's just too limited and it's too weird looking. And you know, when it gets when it, but I think it's the, the beginning of something that will be interesting. Part of the whole wearable thing, I guess. Yeah. Which I'm just not that interested in. I don't wanna I don't wanna do Salesforce approvals on my watch and you know, I don't wanna look like an idiot with stupid glasses on. That are just <laughs> that are just a pain. I mean, I I'm just not I don't know. In its current iteration, the technology is, to me is not super impressive, but you know, it all starts somewhere. Uh so I saw that Amazon is starting an email service that's I think Oh, of course, I can't go to this article because it's behind a paywall. Um, it's uh, it's like a, I guess, a competitor for like Exchange or or Gmail,
0: which is weird. I mean, so is this a just a new service on existing protocols, or are they actually trying to come up with a new protocol?
1: No, no, I think it's just a you know, instead of running Exchange or or using Gmail, mm-hmm. you know, you can have Amazon. Uh, an Amazon email service, and it's like email calendar, the whole oh. know, the thing. That would be interesting. Yeah, this uh, the subtitle is you know this the move is aimed at invading market dominated by Microsoft and Google. Um, an elect an email and electronic calendar service called WorkMail that is aimed at grabbing a slice of the corporate email market, largely controlled by Microsoft and Google.
0: That's going to be tough for them, I think. I mean, I, I'm going to say obviously, I don't know how obvious this is, but you know, Apple's service certainly didn't take off. It wasn't able to, to take a chunk out of Google at all. Um, Microsoft, I think Microsoft just has a foothold on it just because it's, it's got legacy involved into it. Uh, I don't find their tools any, any, all that compelling or anything. Google's still probably top of the list. So they, they have a definitely an uphill battle to somehow offer something that differentiates them. And that, that's going to be difficult. Yeah, in fact, I think one of the everyone probably has a Gmail account if if for no other reason than because someone shared a Google Doc with them and they they wanted they needed access and they went ahead and just created an account to do so.
1: So I've noticed some some press coverage of the Mark Benioff creepy thing, which is funny since we uh, we honed in on that.
0: Were they just as concerned as we are about the creepy factor?
1: No, not at all. In fact, they're covering for him. Really? Um, Yep. In fact, so here's, I don't know what the hell this is, but it said that it starts out with a quote. We are all headed to creepy and the people in this room are making it happen. And it says that was the provocation, Salesforce CEO uh, directed a room, blah, blah, blah. Um, And this is what's interesting. This is how they, they're covering for him. He was talking about the use and abuse of data by marketers with his much, with his own much beloved Fitbit, as an illustration of how the relationship between consumers, creators, and marketers is changing. Uh, and then scroll down. Um, that's why Benioff's heading to creepy is a challenge to marketers. It
0: Wasn't a challenge. He was loving it. He wanted creepy. <laughs> he was all exactly. about creepy. He wants to be the guy outside your window, heavy breathing, fogging it up, so he can write hello.
1: Exactly. So buy
0: more stuff.
1: Like I said, if the if the people that you are covering as a as a journalist would would approve of what you're writing about them, then they then it's probably not journalism, it's probably public relations. There's just so many people that are on the,
0: That's so on interesting the gravy because, train here. Cause when it came to creepy, it was uh, I don't know what what his name was, but it was the guy that was doing the interview that immediately said, That sounds kind of creepy. And that that felt like a not a pre-planned, you know, we're going to talk about this and I'm going to bring up how creepy it is. No, it it felt like a genuine emotional reaction from after hearing Benioff talk, tell his story about Fitbit. Hey, it,
1: was, it was definitely a
0: major faux pas yeah.
1: and just no one, no one covered it. There's just, I mean, there is just no tech journalism to speak of. That's at least it's covering Salesforce. It's all just people uh, regurgitating PR press releases and getting paid to go to Dreamforce. You know, it basically glorified bloggers.
0: Well, it's still very creepy to me, no matter how you spin it.
1: Oh, the whole thing is creepy. That's what CRM has become. It's, uh, you know, that, and that's why they're all in the internet of things. That's just more, more sensors, more ways to spy, more ways to, to, to manipulate and sell.
0: Yeah. And I really don't have anything against marketing in general. I mean, it's how you learn about things. And, you know, if, if no, if you don't know a product exists, you know, you're, you don't know, so I mean there there are there are times where advertising is good. It's just whether or not they get really creepy with it, and that's it's not something I can quantify with a set of rules that says if you do this, this and this, you're creepy i, I think in general it's it's if you're just overreaching and you're invading my space to build to target me extremely directly. I guess that starts to get on the creepy side or the fact that my information is out there and people are. See, I'm not really good with public shaming. I'm not really good with public shaming at all, and that's kind of what Benioff's story was about, was the public shaming he got from his buddy, who, who was it? Was it, um, was it the Google guy? No.
1: Either uh, way, anyway, who- Benioff got a shaming?
0: Yeah, about the workout thing. Oh, are you okay? I see you didn't log your workout or whatever. Whatever. Oh, st- it was Michael Dell. Yeah, okay, there you go. It was Dell, yeah. His, his per- close personal friend and neighbor, Michael Dell. Oh, he loves to name drop. Anyways, yeah, so I, that part, that, for some people, that's okay. For some people, you know, hey, the fact that you know that I worked out or didn't work out yesterday is, is awesome, and, and God, I stop using the word awesome.
1: Everything is awesome.
0: Anyways, it, it, that it, it just, it gets to the point where you're either the type of person that likes to overshare or you're not, and some people just are. They don't mind it. They like their life being an open book and they want you to read it. To me, that's creepy.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, there he's, he was in, uh, was it, when was Davos last week? The global, the, the world economic forum. He was there and that's where, you know, a lot of these CEOs who like to feel self-important and self-aggrandize, that's, that's where they go. All these clubs. But he, I noticed he was like he was leading the charge on this. Um, we've got to build trust, and he even led this panel that was something like, "Let's go and find it." In tech, we trust. Um, you know, the tr- he's, you know, Benioff says that trust has been fundamentally broken between customers and technology companies, and it requires drastic change. It's like hello pot meet kettle, you know. This, and I think this is, I think this is, I think he's pre, uh, you know preemptively. I'm building a case that he, that he's leading trust and Salesforce is a trustable company because they're taking, you know, active steps to, uh, to, to protect customers and, and build this trust. And when in reality, they're the ones who are enabling companies to, to erode trust, to do things that most people would consider a violation of a, of a basic, you know, firewall. But if he can, you know, paint this picture, And of course it's going to, I mean, just look at the news. It's going to get covered with no analysis whatsoever. I mean, it's just basically like it reads like a press release. I'm looking at the New York times right now and it's a press. It's just a Salesforce, you know, press release. Yeah. Essentially. I, I
0: don't know those type, those type of events, those type of, I guess meetings, they're, they're all very superficial. Everyone gets up there in grandstands and talks about what the right thing to do is, but none of them actually do anything about it. I mean, it's, it's just there, they're just there to pat each other on the back and say, Yeah, good job. What a what a great thing to say. But it, it puts the onus on everyone else. It's it's not it doesn't doesn't show any kind of tangible results from it. You know, it's it's saying, We, as in you guys, need to go out and do this. But no one yeah, no, no one takes that and says, Oh, you know what, that's right. It is my responsibility to do X, Y, Z. It's just the way, you know, Benioff really draws these lines.
1: Like he, um, I think before Davos, he, he tweeted and I don't have it and I'm not going to search for it now, but he, he tweeted something that was basically like, you know, there are two types of CEOs at Davos, those who, you know, those who care and, you know, are willing to make a change and those who don't with the obvious, you know, implicit uh, assumption that, you know, he cares. He's, he's, he's one of the good guys. Not only does he tweet stuff like that. But you know, he also, he's, uh, you know, initiated this in, in technology we trust. You know, he's, he's leading the charge on, on being able to trust companies and protecting data. You know, someone, the same article here, someone questioned him about uh, another company he owns that crowd, I don't even know what this was. A uh, question by another, by an audience member about another company he owns that crowdsources personal data and sells it. And Mark's reply, you can opt out. well oh, great. Yeah. Because those type of services are very reputable about that. And the person says, how do, I know, how do I know all the places that I need to opt out? How do I know I need to come to that site? How do I, how do I even know that that service exists that I can
0: go and opt out from? And, and someone and that, was who, Tim Berners, that was Tim Berners-Lee, actually, that, that made that reply. Yeah. yeah so that's and and really someone who knows the, the, the industry, and especially when it comes to opt out, because I know someone who used to do that kind of stuff, all that spamming stuff and everything yeah, you can opt out and you opt out of that URL. They'll just buy another URL and they're, they'll send you something else. Yeah,
1: I mean, there's there's no way you can know all these different companies that that gather your data and then use these like super cookies that, that basically can track you site to site to site because so many companies have opted in, you know, are basically right. federating this thing. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's terrible. And, yeah. and, you know, Salesforce, especially along with all these marketing plays that they've bought, um, they really... I mean, that's what's the the customer journey. That's that whole, what, what's the, um, is it exact target? What's the, what's the one that tracks you? They can basically, you know, be, between your social, all your social stuff, which is obviously public, but also even just sites you visit. I mean, because, because they've got these super cookies and they're basically can track you everywhere and your toothbrush is talking to, to them and your, you know, your car device is going to talk to them. They, they know exactly where you are and what you're doing and how to push your buttons. I mean that that's really right. the whole goal. I mean and obviously like you said, I mean, this is marketing and marketers have, you know, always used data and tracked data. But, you know, just with with sensors everywhere and and the internet and everything being digital, it's it really <laughs> you know, listening to Benioff talk about trust is like the fox guarding the hen house. I mean I, I hope well, he's, I think if the is gonna, gonna happen, it has to come from inside the industry. Um yeah, but do you see anyone proposing standards?
0: I don't know. I, like I said, I think a lot of this is grandstanding and patting each other on the back. When I see someone form some kind of standardization board and they try to recruit as many companies into it as they can and there's some kind of real activity going on, it's just, it's just words to me right now. I mean, we're all concerned about data and our privacy. We have not only companies who are invading our privacy, we have governments that are, you know impeding our privacy or whatever the word is. But I mean, they're, they're, our data is out there and we're just learning how much of it is exposed. And, and we're just learning that we need to change the way we do things in order to keep some of our privacy. Yeah. And I think most people, including people who try to be relatively well-informed, don't even know
1: the half of how much of their data is out there.
0: And it's tough. I mean, what do you do? Just kind of retreat from the entire world just because you're, everything's out there. I mean, it, there's going well, to be, be some balance. people some people do and some people just want to you know so i just saw in the
1: news yesterday so TurboTax, they they did a thing this year where basically people who have always been on like you know the basic level of their product have discovered that now they're going to have to have like this premium the premium version it's like 50 bucks more and it, you know the it it turned into a big kerfuffle and so uh into said oh hey you know we're gonna we're gonna refund all you guys And and this is people who bought the the software from the store, right, and stuck the CD-ROM in their in their uh, computer, and ran the software that runs on your computer. And Intuit is not involved; it just and it submits directly to the IRS. And so, but so what Intuit had done? They they created a website and they said, you know, just plug in, come to our website. This we created for this. Plug in your social security number and like your your name and your zip code, and we will you know find your tax return or whatever, and we will you know refund you. And what they did that actually created yet a bigger kerfuffle because it exposed the fact that they, they they're storing a massive database of all all these people's social security number and who knows what other data about them, including their tax return and they they're not supposed to be doing that ah uh, I was wondering where that was going it was, it was- yeah I mean I just, that was just yesterday it's crazy
0: anyway yeah, so for them to be able to identify it and find your stuff, that means they have it somewhere
1: exactly and and just no one no one knew that they were keeping that. No one knew that Intuit was involved in that chain.
0: Eh, eh. <laughs> this goes back to the wicked, evil terms of service or conditions or whatever that thing yeah, is. Right, like, it's it probably in there up. somewhere. Right, it's, it's probably prob- in there.
1: Yeah. That now, if it's not, not in there, then, then their lawyers really screwed them. Right. But it's probably in there. It's probably in
0: there. But I don't know. I don't always read it. Many of us don't. Yep. All right. What's next? Um, I have a couple of things. I don't know how many things you have, but I have a couple of things that kind of tie together. I think. Let's go. My favorite subject is squid. I want to talk a little bit about that. So, um, they they recently did the whole big release, and it's out there in production now. The Superbank release. <laughs> I was waiting for my Superbank clip. That's okay. Uh, I don't have a clip for Superbank. No, I, I mean I, I can gonna... I can live perform it. There you go, live perform my. What's Superbank. it called? The Squid Superbank. Squid Superbank. The Squid Super Bang! Oh, that? Is that? That's good? That's awesome. That's perfect. <laughs> You're going to ding me for awesome, man. Uh, I'm going to have to it. I've contracted awesome-itis from Benioff. I love if I buzz you? <laughs> Do you have a buzz? Can you not hear it? No, nope, I can't <laughs> hear the buzz. Oh, there it
1: is. Yeah, okay. There you go.
0: Yeah, so so there's a webinar, and the webinar just kind of goes through and talks about a lot of the new features. Um, but that's not really what I want to talk about. What he talked what I want to talk about is during the beginning of the webinar, he kind of covered why they went from, from the seasonal kind of naming convention. So spring, summer, winter, um, to actual names. Um, and it, they actually had some pretty good thoughts on that. And I think actually, you are saying actual
1: about every third word. Actually. Actual. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let me stop you though. Why? Right. What, When you okay, you said they they've gone to actual names. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, giving a release a name versus calling it season, you know, spring or summer, the way Salesforce does. Okay,
1: okay. So I don't see how that's not a name, though. So I'll give an example of one of the names they're gonna use, like you know, the John or the the James or the. They're naming their releases. Give me, are they numbered releases? What are they?
0: So similar to the way, so similar to the way Apple stopped naming things after cats and went to locations and things like that, it gives them more flexibility to name things. And, and I think I really think Salesforce should stop using seasons. Um, one of their reasons, one of the reasons Squid gave was that you know not everyone's on the same season. It, it could be summer somewhere and winter another place. You know, there's some
1: gap there. Yeah, and so winter 15, is that is that the winter that happens at the beginning of 2015
0: or the end of 2015? Right, exactly. The other thing <laughs> is it's really confusing because you'll have a spring release in what should be summer. You know, you're sitting here and it just doesn't make sense and it doesn't track well and again, it it's, you know, is it summer 15 or winter 15 or spring 15? It just gets really old after a while. Plus, I think especially in the case of Salesforce, I'm kind of tired of their logos. You know, it's always that summer theme, it's always this theme. I wouldn't mind having, you know, a different name. Maybe it's an Aloha theme or maybe it's, you know, London theme or something and you get a whole whole new spectrum of different icons that you can have for that. So I think, it, I think it'd benefit them to switch that up. I think Salesforce should have a release called
1: <laughs> uh,
0: I also think Salesforce should reduce the number of releases per year. I think, I think maybe one or two would be good. but
1: um, Yeah, the three is, is really pushing it, not only for, I think, Salesforce's uh, internal resources, but also customers because as much as they'd like to spew bullshit and spin how you know it's it's no you know you get these releases for free and there's nothing you have to do it's complete bullshit i mean there's so much if you have a significant amount invested in salesforce in terms of customization you've, you've got to be testing and again remember we talked about last week all the crap you have to do with your sandbox to make sure your 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 sandbox either gets upgraded to the next release before or if you don't want it to then you have to do something that you doesn't you know you get you have to get off the pre-release server and all that kind of stuff it's it takes a lot of planning and effort and and regression testing On the part of the customer.
0: Right. Another thing that it does, if you switch off the seasonal thing is, is for that very reason, they don't, when you, when you do seasonals, you almost kind of, you almost kind of have to do a release. You almost kind of set the precedence that we're going to do this seasonal release three times a year. If they change it to a name, then they can do maybe two this year and three next year or four one year or one one year.
1: Yeah, like do it when it makes sense for the business, not right. when not when the the days are a certain length.
0: And and then again, and remember back when they had to actually delay a release, and it was delayed by months, which means yeah, spring we got, became spring got released in summer, right? <laughs> and everything shifted, and so the seasons just again just were really confusing. So I, I think there's a strong argument to not use seasons as a release cycle or schedule or even naming convention. So my prediction is they will see the light soon, and they will stop using seasons for releases.
1: Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. I think. So what do you know? I was asking though, what's an example of one of, of Squid's new release name? Do they, did they say? Well, Superbank is one. Oh, that's the name of the release. Okay. Yeah, that's
0: the name of the release. And it's actually, I didn't know this, but I I they're going with surfing terms, which is why if you look at the images, it's some guy surfing. I guess it's a, is it a beach? I think it's a beach or a surf location or something. I don't know. I, I'm not into surfing, so it didn't really stick with me, but that's why they called it Superbank. I think it's in Australia or something. It could be like a beach where they- have awesome surf or something. Um, and I know it was in Australia because they were using Australia as an example of where the seasons really don't, don't really matter or don't really, or they're off by, by whatever. So yeah, they're opposite of ours. Yeah. That's why they changed the names. Hmm. And I think Salesforce should follow suit. Um, so one of the other things they talked about and part of me was like, yeah, that's, that makes sense. And that's awesome. That's really good. Almost said it, (laughs) but another part of me felt like it was a bit of a stretch and maybe a a lot of marketing layered on top of what is for the most part, just a really good user experience toolkit. But, you know, they said that a lot of people ask them about their roadmap and they don't really release a roadmap that says, you know, this is the things we're going to be releasing in the next few months or whatever. Um, but they did kind of talk about where they think squid is going, how it fits into the ecosystem and what they think it is. um, And this was a bit of a stretch because they they compared what Squid is doing, and I'm going to try to quote this, but it's paraphrasing. It says, what Mosaic did for the internet, Squid does for the enterprise. And so, Mosaic was the first, the first internet browser? The first graphical one, right? Yeah. And so, again, that one phrase is kind of a bit of a stretch to me because I really don't see it being that squid claimed this yes i don't really see it being that much of a game changer in terms of what we're doing i mean it's it's a lot of good tools and everything but i don't think it changes anything it's not this whole new technology that that's somewhat innovative and and just does all this stuff i mean it's a great product um but as he goes into explaining it i guess i can entirely see it i mean he talks about how before then using the internet was with a bunch of rudimentary tools it wasn't really easy to use or accessible those type of things um so i guess from that perspective taking all the point and clicks, all the different kind of base level, almost rudimentary tools you have in Salesforce and tacking on this, this layer on top of it that all it's really doing is, is making all those things a lot easier. Um, and they had a lot of good re- examples of that, but they basically say, you know, we're trying to reinvent this, u- this user experience. Um, they kind of said it in a very general sense, but obviously this is very tied to Salesforce. So they're really trying to reinvent the Salesforce user experience. Um, they had a lot of great examples about some customers who took things that took forever in Salesforce because of all the point and clicking. Um, they talked about a call center that was able to save 15 minutes per call. Um, they talked about a healthcare organization that was able to save almost eight hours of, I guess, collective time or whatever, but they were able to save eight hours, an eight hour process and get it down to, if not half minuscule amount of time, um, to process Something, I don't know. And then they talked about a communications organization that really took Squid and and used it for everything. They used it for creating mobile device applications and, um, of course, desktop applications. And this is all sitting on top of Salesforce, of course. And they just basically designed this whole new user interface, which is some of the stuff that I've been doing lately. So I guess from that perspective, I can kind of see where they're going with that. But in terms of just like it being this brand new invented technology, I I don't see that.
1: Yeah, that's that that comparison indicates delusions of grandeur.
0: <laughs> it was a bit of a stretch, but um I think from a user experience That was a nice commercial for them. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> let me let me know when I'm gonna get my
1: cut of the uh sponsorship fees. Oh, yes, I will. I will. Never. Seriously. <laughs> All right. Well there's our ten minute squid commercial. Yeah. Uh, um so- what else?
0: So I, 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 on top of that, I've been doing a lot of squid development, and this is kind of leading to something completely different, and this is SAS, but not SAS. Okay. So not software as a service, but SAS, the uh, CSS the, framework.
1: Okay. I was going to say, because there's so many SASs, there's well, there's a SA, SAS, the uh, enterprise, whatever they are, software company, but okay. So SAS, okay. the 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 CSS, uh, Yeah. Yeah, so compiler language.
0: Yeah, in my workflow, um, I'm doing a lot of Squid, which means I'm back into doing a lot of JavaScript, back to doing a lot of HTML and CSS and all those kind of things. So obviously I'm looking for tools to kind of help make things easier, better, um, increase my productivity, all those kind of things. And so when it came to styling and everything for, for the Squid pages, um, I found that I was having to copy and paste a lot of things, duplicate a lot of CSS across different pages. Um, so I switched to making everything a resource and including them in. That way it's it's in one download, it's faster performance. But I still had a lot of CSS and I had a tough time managing colors across the different screens and those kind of things that I needed to do. So that's when I decided to start using SAS. And SAS is great. I've been using it. This is the first time I've had to really just kind of put it through its paces and really use it in a real project where I had just a ton of CSS and broke it out into different partials and modules and all those kind of things. Um, but I found myself doing some really dumb stuff with it too. I found myself overly nesting things and just in general, just not really using really good best practices. I was just kind of really using the tool improperly. So I did some searching and I found this article on a list apart. um, it was done by Felicity Evans. And, um, so she came up with this SAS manifesto and so I thought I'd share some of them and see what you think. Are you familiar? Have you been using SAS before? I thought you had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So these might ring true with you. So so the first manifesto is output over input. And for that, she says, the quality and integrity of the generated CSS is of greater importance importance than the pre-compiled code. And I think that has to do with a lot of the nesting that you can do with with, with uh, SAS. It's really easy to start nesting things. And you end up with this long chain class structure uh, once the CSS is generated. And... Um, that can get really bad, it can get really hard to manipulate, it can get really hard to just kind of maintain. Um, So I agree with that one. Next one is proximity over abstraction. And that just kind of speaks to just normal best practices. Uh, She states that as projects should be portable without over-reliance on external dependencies, and I agree with that. That's standard, par for the course. You know, you don't want to make sure that everything's somewhat portable that you haven't tied yourself to all these different things um a lot of project dependencies in other words so is proximity over abstraction right what do you mean by proximity like proximity of what to what portable without over reliance on external dependencies is what she says now, now what I, kind of external dependencies other well so maybe having too much css owned by another project that you're reusing in your project is how i took it hmm okay uh, so well, since when was this article written? Uh, not too long ago, actually. I think it was earlier this week or last week.
1: oh so it's really new. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, there's some other things that that just I'll touch on briefly because there's one that I really want to get to, and that's um, uh, understanding brevity. So having a clear, you know, clear structure that's not overly complex. Um, consolidation over repetition was is something I talked about that I ended up doing. I had a lot of just things just overly complex, overly repeated in other areas. Um, function over presentation, obviously, um, having some kind of naming convention that doesn't involve specifics. So, uh, in particular, don't have a tag that says, you know, red box or green box or something. You know, you'll want something like a primary color or secondary color, things like that, something that's a little more general that promotes some kind of reuse um, and doesn't tie you to a specific color scheme or things like that. Um, and then consistency over novelty. Um, and that one—that one's kind of difficult, I think. To me, that—and I'm just guessing—but that—that
1: to me, that just means, uh, yeah, be consistent over over doing things that seem cl- like a really clever way to do it. Avoid yeah. clever, you know, SAS markup. Yeah,
0: and that's that's kind of the one I wanted to expand on because that one I ran into a lot. So it's not only just not trying to be overly clever with your nesting and and your variables and things like that, but also. She went into a little bit more detail about the need to re engineer or redo a lot of your current CSS. I mean, it it can live and exist with existing CSS. So you don't have to go in and rewrite everything, but there's that tendency to want to. There's a tendency to want to take all your old CSS and break it up and re engineer it and redesign it. And then you end up with this not only taking the time to do all that, but then you end up more than likely over engineering something um, to fit into this perfect world model that you're trying to build
1: yeah usually those usually unless there's some really good reason to do a kind of ground up refactoring it's not worth it
0: so i think it's a good article i think it's worth going out there and reading and and just kind of sharing in that experience only because from personal experience and getting into it i found myself doing a lot of these things that that um that i should be guarding against and it ha- It didn't happen all at once. It wasn't like I sat down and created this immense structure. It just kind of happened as I was trying to isolate things in ways that I thought would make it easier to maintain, or I isolated things because I was overly concerned about conflicts with my CSS classing name. So I ended up at some point creating these modules and then creating a top-level class for that module and then nesting all my styles within that to avoid any kind of what I thought would be... Um, CSS conflicts with anything else that's trying to style something. So I ended up creating this, this really massive structure that just kind of happened because I thought I was being clever.
1: Yeah. I mean it's probably a common beginner thing to do. So my question is though is more around using this in in a Salesforce environment. So like, you know, one thing that you always have to be concerned of when you add kind of a new layer or step in the process here is just is just the time that it's going to add to you know, your build process or or just the 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 you know ever important you know edit compile refresh right. and see the result you know that that time cycle because you want that as I mean fast as possible you know preferably sub sub second sub one second
0: yeah and, and
1: well so hang on so you know whether it's uh, you know a, a Ruby project or you know a play framework or you know a uh, you know like a grunt based build thing I mean I can I can usually get really fast you know refresh times Um, the problem i have is on salesforce projects because there's just no good again it comes to the salesforce deployment model and and metadata and the fact and actually the biggest the biggest problem is there's no way to run a salesforce project locally so you've got to you know do your compiling and all that stuff which which can be extremely fast but now you've got to submit this new static resource to salesforce And have it, you know, wait 15, 20, 30 seconds while it, you know, while that gets uploaded. And then while Salesforce does it's whatever metadata stuff it does that takes so much time. And then, you know, 20, 30 seconds later, you can refresh the browser. And I'm sorry, when you're making, you know, lots of, you know, when you're doing CSS and trying to get styling right, you know, you're making this, you know, a lot of times just minor tweaks or or trying things or kind of like debugging. and, And you just, you want that to be really quick. I mean, You can take something that would take you, you know, a minute to do, you know, across, you know, let's say 10, you know, six second little quick edits. And that that could take you you what should be a minute to like a 10 or 15 or 30 minute process on Salesforce. So how do
0: you how are you dealing with that? That's a good question, because I I did have to have to overcome that. Now, there's still a delay when I build, um, but essentially I use Sublime Text with Maven's Mate. Um, and that at least allows me to create a resource in Salesforce. Um, and Maven's mate has this really, really good tool. I think you said you tried it, but it wasn't working at the time. It seems to be working great now. And you basically create what's called a resource bundle. And that basically lets you unzip your, your static resource and you have your normal structure within that. So I have like my, my JavaScript folder, my CSS folder, my images folder, and then that allows me to do is anything within within that, when I save it, it builds it, basically rezips it, and then uploads it to Salesforce for me. So that part is really quick. I don't have to go into Salesforce, find the static resource record, click the edit, find the file using the button. Yeah, I get all that I get all that it's,
1: But regardless of what you know, you use Mavens might do that. I you know, I usually use like a, a grunt build to do that. That's
0: right. that's well, both aud- of automating are fine. automating that process is the first step, I think. So however we sure. really do it that's how you do it. It, But to answer your specific question, what I do is I do build it, I deploy it, but then I go into my browser and I edit the CSS there. So I'll come up with what I think it should look like, and then I'll edit directly in the browser. So I'll, I'll use the tools in Chrome or Safari or Firefox to physically edit the CSS styling using those tools. And once I have it to where I think I like it, then I'll take whatever I did and put that into my actual CSS file in my IDE and save and promote that to, to production or, or to my environment, whichever I'm developing in. And that has saved me a lot of time. That lets me do my quick tweaking and modifying of things. Um, I could add new tags and things like that. So I really make heavy use of those browser tools. So when anyone's doing squid development, I cringe when they're using like something like IE. I cringe when they don't know how to use those tools that are built into the browser because if you're going to get fast and if you're going to get productive at this, you need to use those tools. Well, if you're on Salesforce, sure. Uh, you know, I, I guess, um, I, and I'm I, not I, saying I, not, I even do that sometimes when I'm doing normal HTML stuff. I mean, no, I, I, have, I agree. I have things like Coda that auto refreshes an image of it onto my iPad and all those things, but I still find that it's quicker for me to just kind of, Right-click, open the tools, inspect the elements, and make a few changes.
1: Yeah, no, that that's and especially like when you're when you're trying to find like you know the, the exact right you know width or for something or a padding or something. Being able to just to make just constant little micro adjustments and, that, and see it immediately in the in the browser. That I agree with that. I mean, that's that's a good
0: tool. But and when it comes to Squid, that's that's almost a requirement because you're dealing with a framework that's already built. You're trying to modify it on top of it, especially when it comes to styling. So you need to, be able to go in and inspect those elements, see what tags are being added. Um, hover over with your mouse to see if any new tags are getting added. So in the case of button hovers, there's actual tag that gets tacked onto that. It's not a, it's not a hover state. It's a, an actual um, HTML tag that gets added on hover. So it's different things like that that you kind of have to be aware of and find in order to properly restyle something.
1: Yeah, and you know, so there's kind of an irony here. So today. Some couple of Salesforce employees, one of them being um James Ward, who's some kind of platform evangelist. I'm not sure exactly what he does. Because I don't think it's on the force.com side, but he um you know, he did that. He and Bruce Eckel did that. Um it's basically like a Java webinar of, you know, kind of modern ways to do Java apps. So and,
0: before before you get into that, I have to make a confession. <laughs> what? Because you had you'd given me the heads up on that and I signed up and registered and I jumped on it today. Okay. Um I jumped off after 5 minutes. Okay. That's fine. I don't care. I feel like it was it was out of my realm. I am just not that big of a Java guy. I need to get into it, so I'm really counting on you to tell me what was yeah. really good about it.
1: Well, I mean, it was actually it was really kind of beginner level. But it, but you know, one of the, but the, what they were talking about is like how to um you know, modern ways to build Java apps in a way that, you know, quick really quick iterations, use the right tools so that, you know, you're developing fast, you're not relying on you know, big, heavy app servers and, and all these types of things. And so, you know, a couple of things I pointed out, is, you know, make sure you're running and developing locally and make sure your edit, save, refresh cycle is really fast. And, you know, so, you know, in Java world, you know, you can use, you know, like the play framework has I built in, I think it, I think it, um I think that uses SBT under the hood, but, or there's things like J rebel that basically hot patch things into the JVM almost immediately. And it's weird. So now we've, and now I've got, you know, a Salesforce seminar here or webinar where they're, It's good advice, but it's, it's completely, uh, that, that, that's, that's the big problem with Salesforce is this exact type of thing, at least, you know, for force.com development.
0: It's almost a slap in the face, isn't it? When you get all this really great advice about how to rapidly develop and deploy and manage your development cycle, yet you can't apply any of that to Salesforce.
1: No, it's very depressing. I feel trapped. You know, I'm, I'm in this ecosystem. I, you know, it's a useful, it's a useful tool. A lot of companies are, are using it. And, but I, just my ability to create value is so limited. Um, at least in, well, it's time you know, consuming. Yeah, exactly. Which, which limits, which limits my value. I mean, I can provide much more value per, per the amount of time and money I get paid on other platforms. It's right. just, it's just frustrating. And then having to deal with things in Salesforce, like the other day, tests were just not running. They were just sat in the queue for hours. It's like, well, what do you do when you're you know, supposed to do a deployment over over the weekend and this, and this happens. It's like, you know, it's just very frustrating. It's like, you know, I feel like this platform is just constantly fighting. It's just, it's just not up to it. Like I say, it's just not competitive.
0: Yeah. From a, from a tooling perspective, we need a lot of help. And I was disappointed a few years ago when that question came up um, to some product engineers and they basically, I mean, not quote for quote, but they basically said they're, they didn't have anything planned for that. They're looking to the, I guess they were looking for the industry to kind of fix that. They released the tooling API and I guess they're it solved none of it solved none of right. these problems. It, it it allows you to kind of build your own tools and maybe create some productivity for yourself or for those companies out there that are looking to solve some issues, but the underlying issue of still committing that code to the to the system or even deploying that to other environments, that's still on Salesforce to fix and that's still something they need to address. Yep. The tooling API didn't solve for any of that. It, it was a nice nod. It, it's great that we have it, um, especially for tools like Maven's Made and any other, you know, IDs out there like Eclipse and all those kind of things. But we still need to be able to compile and deploy those things a lot faster than we are today.
1: I mean, the reality is 90% of their customers, I think, are not asking for this. They're doing, you know, again, your what, you know, the the typical, you know, back office IT Developers just, you know, slapping together a visual force page here, or there, no big deal. Just, it needs a box and a button and it needs to create a record and send an email. You know, it's, it's not, it's nothing. They probably don't even automate it. It's, you know, it's, um, simple and for that stuff, it's, it's, it's fine. But when you really, when you're trying to do more things and it's, you know, bigger things and, and things like re, you know, repeatability and, and reliability of this and, and this, and the scale and the speed become important. Right. But I just I don't know. I don't know if I I mean I I think not enough people are asking for it. And clearly Salesforce is not investing in that. They'd much rather spend their money on um, you know, super expensive acquisitions and, you know, adding things like WAVE, um, just adding to the feature set, continuing to you know, they they're fighting this marketing war that we've talked about so much. Right. And that's you know, there they there's not any amount of money that would be enough to fight that war. So they're not gonna they're not gonna spend it on fixing these things that I'm complaining about i mean i don't know I'm,
0: I'm still hopeful that they'll they'll surprise us i still i'm still hoping that that one day they'll come out and say hey we've we've revamped this this is apex 2.0 and um you can use all these modern languages or modern tool sets and everything compiles and all that kind of stuff i i, I keep hoping for that i don't know if that's ever going to be a reality but i still have hope for that yeah i saw today or, um, or even better just, just open up heroku and let that let that Live within the Salesforce ecosystem directly. I still don't understand why they haven't done that. It's, again,
1: it's just it's engineering time and cost that they're just it's just not a big deal for them. I mean, what what have they done? Heroku Connect is that it? is that you know that's one thing, but that's I don't know that's very limited in you know in terms of how you know the scenarios in which you can use that.
0: I, I would love for for a Heroku like environment that is a first class citizen of Salesforce and is part of the the whatever the licensing is for enterprise and, and ultimate or whatever it is now. Um, not as a separate tack on thing that, that forces companies to sit there and go, well, can we make do with apex or can we make do with this? Because they don't want to spend the extra money or licensing on, on that other technology.
1: Yeah. Um, what did you see this apex 15 apex commandments?
0: No, I didn't. That sounds interesting.
1: (sighs) Yeah. A lot of it's
0: just... Thou shalt not expect your code to compile within yeah. <laughs> two minutes. Exactly. Thou shalt not complain about Apex being too slow. <laughs>
1: thou shalt start a test and go get coffee.
0: Thou shalt not worship false idols like Java and <laughs> C Sharp. <laughs> uh,
1: so this was, uh, I guess, on Salesforce's developer blog or something. Um, yeah, number one, thou shalt keep thy code stupid simple. Because that's all we can handle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't put queries in loops. Okay. Because we can't handle that either. This is either. also, yeah, this is also very 101 stuff. Um, thou shalt utilize maps for queries. Because maps are awesome. Um, use relationships to reduce queries. Uh, no DML loops. This is interesting. Thou shalt use only one trigger per object which I think Forget the is fact n- that
0: we let you create more than one trigger per object.
1: I know. Well, I mean, that's... I don't blame it on Salesforce. That's just, you know, they can't enforce good
0: style. But I Unfortunately, I think actually, that rule in of itself isn't really helpful because people will just move everything into one class.
1: Well, that's because people, you know, yeah. you There's no... What's the... There's no accounting for uh, taste? Is that what it is? Yeah. A class? I don't know. I think it's taste. Yeah, that's actually not a bad thing. I like being able to go and you know i I can look at the you know the opportunity trigger there's one trigger for opportunity, and I can see and it's again if you if you don't keep in of your actual business logic in your in your trigger you can actually you can look at that you know sh- what should be a short trigger and see everything that happens when an opportunity is saved or updated or deleted yeah just by because it's you know assuming you've named things well and, and and your- you know your method names tell the truth
0: and I've adopted that but i for a while there and i i still Think this is a better idea. I like splitting it up into two. I like having the before context and the after context well defined because it, it you can it, there's different restrictions on each one. Well, on the before you're basically modifying the object that was passed in. On the after you're having to you're 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 going to have to do DML if you're going to modify that same object. So I it's it's more psychological to me than anything. But I I actually prefer having two than one. But I've, yeah, I've since have, adopted the one because that's what everyone's kind of standardized on.
1: Well, and to me, the downsides to the two is, and I see, I get it why you do that because they're almost such different models The before and the after the, the way you think is different, but, uh, I still like to be able to open the trigger file for, uh, for an object and see what happens in one, in one place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty nice. Um, now should I keep logic outside of triggers? So that was your thing um and they mentioned they reference uh Kevin O'Hara's SFDC trigger framework which I looked at and I have issues with probably wouldn't use it. although I mean it's got some good ideas in it but it's almost you know you create basically um a base class for the trigger and since Salesforce doesn't have really doesn't have real generics it's a really generics all actually um you <laughs> this trigger base class has you basically passes in like objects or a list of objects so you have to you know there's tons of you know casting um and also, if you're, if you have an apex base class that looks like a trigger, it's like I got a method for, you know, before this, after this, and, and most of them aren't even implemented, then now you just, now you have two triggers, really. I, I would not want to see that base class, you know, extended, and then you implement all of that trigger functionality for that object in this one big class. And I'm, and of course, there's nothing about what he's put together that, or his little trigger framework that's, that says you have to do that, but that's, that's what's going to happen. I still like mine much better. You can you can open up the trigger, cl- you know, file and you can via m- via methods that read like English, you can see exactly what's happening and the, and it's, you know, of course all the works being done in appropriately named classes, right? So,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think know, I've seen it before too. I I have an issue with s- some frameworks only because there's a lot of bloat involved, but that's most pl- frameworks in general, but it's not as much of an issue as it was to me before because The limits have kind of been increased, so you don't have that statement limit anymore. But that was a concern of mine in some of these frameworks is that, you know, we have to deal with limits. And this is, most frameworks have to do a lot of extra work um, just to account for different usage and things like that that you may not be doing, which is why it's always more efficient to to handwrite a function than it is to use a framework. But a framework distracts you from a lot of low-level stuff, so it's a balancing act.
1: So thou shalt have a happy balance between clicks and code. I hate this. Clicks and code. Button click admin. This this is so ridiculous. You know what? Because they never talk about testability on any of this. I'm just going to skip this one because it's not good for my blood pressure. Number nine, thou shalt cover thy code. Okay, yeah,
0: you should have tests. You should write meaningful tests. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we talk about unit testing all the time, so there's probably no reason for us to get into it again, but that's a big thing. I mean... Waiting yeah, there's till,
1: several here on tests, several. Is there at least minutes. one
0: on, you know, test-driven development, test first? Yeah, so they have, yes, there is. Thou shalt write unit tests before
1: developing. I don't
0: always do that, but I, I no, do think. No, because,
1: no, because if you, I mean, if you really do test-driven development, there's tons of refactoring involved.
0: But you have to stub In, out the classes and everything, which you have to do anyways, but the refactoring tools don't make it easy for you to do that no. refactoring that you have to do.
1: It would take me twice as long to do test first development with right. Salesforce. It's just it's ridiculous. But um, you,
0: you do kind of have to think fourth dimensionally and and kind of structure things in a way that you to accommodate a test.
1: Yeah. Uh, thou shall not never use dummy code coverage. Uh, I, I came across this the other day. I'm in a client's org, and I came across this test class. Or uh, no, it was a, actually it was not a test class. It was a regular class. And this one method that was about like 2,000 lines long or something, and it was just like. Just concatenating is actually super. In this, not only was it a terrible way to get coverage, but what it was doing was really in a, a very you know processor intensive way to get code coverage. But what was it doing? I'm curious. Uh, it was just basically it was just it was um it created a string uh-huh. like you know with just one character in it, <clears throat> and then it had two thousand lines of uh, concatenating one more character onto that string every time. So number one, by the end, you have a 2,000 character line string. But also, I mean, strings are probably immutable in Apex, I'm sure, under the hood. And so every time it creates a new string, since strings are immutable, it throws the old one away and has to allocate memory for a new one. It doesn't just take the same string instance and, and add on to it. So it's very inefficient the way it was doing that. But that's what you see from... A lot of these Salesforce developers. So there was um, an
0: actual method or something that it was doing that so that it could just call it and get a lot of coverage? Is that what it was doing? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, so it's just, you know, yeah. it makes your coverage percentage go up. Right. Um, thou shalt never test with existing data. So they're saying basically don't ever do CL data equals true. But That would be nice if I could, <laughs> exactly. I could
0: mock every every piece of data.
1: And of course, the one that everyone points to is, is uh, anything involving price books or anything related to price books through any level of kind of interaction. So, you know, opportunity line items, there's all sorts of things that tie in price books. And so you've got to bring in all data. There's also anything that uses uh, the chatter, what do they call it? The connect API, which is how you do chatter in Apex. Mm -hmm. That all requires CL data to be true. And so I was on one project and it was pretty big. And we had, there were some triggers that created um, like chatter posts and things. And pretty much any DML would cause one of these triggers to fire to create chatter information, and so essentially the entire tests, the full test suite, it was all CL data equals true because almost everything involved chatter to some at some point. Just a mess. Um, thou shall not introduce extra logic for tests. So don't use the is test running and,
0: of course, right. yeah, that's
1: people do that all the time too.
0: Yeah, I do too. Well it it was a a main feature of my original uh before they came out with the um the mocking system for callouts that was how I did it. I would basically put a switch in the code and if it was a if it was running in test mode I would return my mock object that I added to a global static variable. Otherwise it would do the actual call out. So but I guess that's a good one for now. Yeah. Now that they solved that or solved for that. So that's their list. I don't know. Pretty poor list actually, huh? So is there any commandment not on that list that you would add? I know you are going to ask that. <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah. What are the, some of
1: the things I see, um, you know, don't have classes that are thousands of lines long. I mean, this is just nothing to do with APE actually just good programming. I mean, don't um, and be mindful of the number of columns, like, you know, pick it whether, whether it's 100 columns or 120 columns and, and don't go past. don't make me scroll horizontally a bunch to read your code or your queries right um how about indent your code well indent it but don't over indent it like don't over nest that's the other thing i mean I've, i see code and i see this all the time in salesforce code's code so nested right that it literally starts you know the the highly nested parts start off of the screen I, you have to scroll so far to the right it's just and i'm thinking who's who's what human brain can even understand this code how did someone get this code in a working state? <laughs> no That's actually fairly impressive they were able to do that. It's like, if you're smart enough to do that, surely you're smart enough just to write simple code in the first place. Right. You know, use, use the tools that the language, I mean, that the language provides. I mean, Apex does provide classes and methods and, you know, some basic ab- abstraction tools. and
0: Not only that, you breaking it up makes it easier to test and debug because now you have a, a point in time and a block of code that that's being isolated.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because on the, the highly nested stuff becomes really difficult to test. It also becomes difficult to get all the, all the different conditions that exercise all of those different nested blocks and conditional blocks and everything. Uh, what about you? Do you have any good ones?
0: No, I I probably could sit here and, and just come up with a bunch off the top of my head, but they will be like nitpicking things. Um, things like, you know, use proper variable or, Use clear and defined proper variable names um, so that your code is readable. I mean, don't use variable A equals something, you know? Make it it's funny, something. C-
1: naming seems to be about one of the hardest things for most developers.
0: It is hard, but don't get lazy.
1: It is hard, I agree. That well, should not be
0: lazy with your naming conventions. Yeah, exactly.
1: How about that? Y- you, yeah, exactly. I mean, because often you don't get the name right the first time, which is one reason why it's so painful that you can't really refactor on cells I mean, just na- renaming anything is usually impossible. Right. Um, but if you realize you don't get the name right, try to, try to change it once you, you know, because oftentimes when you start, you know, say you start writing a class and you think it's going to do one thing and, you know, you realize halfway into it that you've kind of refactored some parts out into other classes. And now what this class does is actually different than what you originally thought it was going to do. So rename it
0: right. to what it actually does. How about thou shall, uh, what's the right way to say this? Thou shall not, Write a book in your comments. I don't know. <laughs> a book out of your comments. Ah, uh, yeah. Over commenters. I, I, I like to use comments, but I use them in a very specific way. I either, A, use them to explain something that's kind of weird that I'm doing, but I have to do it that way. Well, that's what comments are supposed to be for. Or I, when I'm actively developing, um, a lot of times the logic kind of has to just flow in one piece. And I'll kind of comment a major section of the block of code. And that's kind of my outline. And so when I go back to refactor and improve performance, I'll usually look at those comments and break those out into different functions. It's kind of my way of saying, I think this needs to be its own function. Yep. Um, So I'll use them for that. And sometimes those comments will kind of stay there just because I like the way they look, but um, they're really short and they just, they're almost like a title. But what I've seen is people almost writing instructions as, as if they're training someone in the comments, like set the variable to this so that when we grab it later, it's going to do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, this what? next line of code increments the variable by one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so don't do that. And I, I used to be a fan of the whole top level header thing that said X, Y, you know, authored with this and returns this and explained all the variable functions and things like that. But you can't really generate code documentation from it. And then that means you have to maintain it. So it's really not worth the effort of doing that. Maybe if you're writing a framework, and that's really the only reason to do it, is if you're writing a framework or an API to put that level of documentation into it. Other than that, it's a waste of your time.
1: Yeah, that. or if your tooling knows how to parse those, and anytime you're calling a method or you, know, you start typing a class name, you, it pops up that documentation for you. Right. But again, which, that means you have to maintain that. It does. And yeah, the comments shouldn't say anything that the code already says or should say clearly. And oftentimes if you're finding yourself having to d- explain something, sometimes that means you need your code to be clear. Of course, like you, like you were talking about, sometimes it just means that there is a weird way you have to do this. And if you don't explain it to the person that's going to come after you, they're going, they may be tempted to, to change it to the more naive way and not realizing that it you know, doesn't work that way. And that there's a really good reason why you did it the way you did. That's a really good reason for comments.
0: All right. Well, we're getting preachy. I know. Well, since we're on the subject of preachy, this is, this can't be a uh, commandment, but I'll 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 make it my own personal commandment: Thou shalt not develop using the web tool, whatever that thing is. What is it called? Oh, the developer console. The developer console. <laughs> do not do that.
1: Well, the, you, you, that doesn't doesn't really need to be a commandment because you basically can't use it. It's so
0: bad. But I've seen people try, and they oh, they oh. come to me for questions and help. I'm like, open up Eclipse. What I can't read what you're doing. What is this? It's just not conducive for good development.
1: No, and like it, you know, tabs and spaces and nothing, nothing works right. And right, it's, I don't understand what font they're using. It's, it's everything just looks weird. And um, yeah, and there's like maybe it's my keys commandment
0: that says if 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 you ask me for help, thou shall not use the console to illustrate exactly. what you're trying yeah. to do. Uh, well,
1: and also if they're using the console, that means they're probably not using other good practices like you know, version control on their local machine and that kind of stuff.
0: It's, oh, there's a commandment. They'll show you version control. Oh, that's yeah.
1: I mean, it should go without saying, but I guess most of these things do.
0: Well, that's what these commandments are. Things that should go without saying, but need to be yeah. said. Uh, See, I said, if we sat here long enough, we could come up with a huge list.
1: We need to, I want to do at least a segment on one, a feature episode on how you work with multiple developers and how you manage Version control and like different, you know, everyone has their own sandboxes and how you branch and see. You've you know. been
0: saying that for a while now. I'm going to hold. I know. You I know. Bad.
1: And it, and I don't. I've got some of it solved, but I don't have all of it solved. That's why I want to have a discussion about it. All right.
0: Next week's episode will be our discussion on well, I'm how not, to develop as a team. I'm not committing to a time. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is that's your homework. You have I to have get commitment. It done. I have commitment issues, John. I I've noticed. <laughs> I will talk I'll talk to your wife because somehow she got you to commit to marry her.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna make it. It only comment. took like five years or yeah. something. As I was gonna say I'm not gonna comment
0: on that. <laughs> but if
1: you want to for me, that's fine.
0: So five years from now we'll have that that discussion with Jeremy. Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right, on our weekly podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, I see. how are we doing on time? Oh, we're over. We're over. Yep.
0: And to that I say good day, sir. Good day, sir. I can move my hips.
1: He's a jackass.
0: Thank you.